receive his word together. Um, I want to make a further announcement to you this morning about a dear, dear man who's been part of the church here for many years, Mr. Bobby Shockley, who passed away this past week and went home to be with the Lord. And so he is rejoicing around God's throne. He is singing louder than he's ever sung in his life, and he's experiencing joy unspeakable and full of glory now. And it's, uh, he's just a sweet, sweet man, served God, served this church, served people. Uh, I just walked up this morning. I, I just always saw Bobby, always. You know, I saw him coming in from the parking lot. I saw him in my office. I saw him around the church building. He just had a heart to be involved with everything. You know what I love about Bobby's story is Bobby wasn't a guy that had a lot of handles on him in the sense, you know, a lot of times, you know, our, our families create handles for us. You know, we have a spouse, we have children, they get involved with people. They make it easier for us to connect with others. Well, Bobby didn't have that. Bobby's wife uh, passed away almost 10 years ago. And um, he was just a, a single man with frail health. And he, this was family for him. This church was his family. And what, God was doing in this church was important to him and he gave himself to it and served and he was uh, involved in small group ministry to serve and to care for others and to receive love and care. And so part of me just wants to say, thank you for your love for that man. Uh, It meant a lot to him and he would just stop me sometimes and say how affected he was by the church, how much you love the church. Um, he'd be greatly missed. Um, there's a funeral for him service Wednesday at two here. Um, and it's always, it, you know, if, if you've had someone that you love who's, who's died, it means a lot to you when folks come and minister to you when that happens. Uh, Bobby has a family that doesn't know much of life in the body of Christ and life in the kingdom of God. And I I, I love these moments when the church ministers to that family in funeral settings, when they show up at a funeral service. And if you've, if, if you're a person who's been to funerals lately, you know, this, uh, I've, I've been to a lot of funerals. Just like every public gathering that touches our lives, there's a diminishing attendance in everything known to humanity except Saints games. Uh, That's still managing to sell out. But I used to go to funerals and lots of people would show up to them. I go to funerals now and there's hardly anybody there. And what amazes people is when I look around and I see very few family members, very few friends of those people, but people from the church have come to respect this person and their family. And so I just want to encourage you to do that for Bobby as well. It will, it will, I think, mean a lot and surprise his family to see how well-loved he was by this church. Um, we are going to have some opportunities for people to share just brief testimony of, a, of their life and relationship with Bobby during the service. If you'd like to do that, because some of you were close to Bobby or kind of engaged him on a regular basis, and 
you'd like to share something, we just ask you to let us know that so we can incorporate it into the service. Uh, the other thing we're going to do is, is let folks who maybe just have a quick word of appreciation about Bobby, if you'd like to send us that, we're going to put that together and send it to his family just so that they're aware of who this man was to us and how much it meant for him to be a part of our lives. So if you can't be at the service or you're not even interested in standing up and sharing it, but you'd like just to communicate your appreciation, would you please send that to us? If you can just remember to contact the church office, you can send it to, I think Peter's going to organize the service. So Peter at LakeviewChristianCenter.com. If you can't remember all that, just call the church office or send something to the church office and we'll make sure it gets into the right hands. Um, Last week, I mentioned something about preaching. You know, preaching, if it's good biblical preaching, should accomplish two things on a regular basis. doesn't always feel the same because sometimes preaching is going to disturb the comfortable. We get comfortable living our lives in ways that God's not interested in us living our lives. Let's just say it for what it is. And in that moment... Thank God that he comes and disturbs that place. He doesn't just say, hey, you get to just live that way and be that for the rest of your life. God sends preaching to disturb us in that moment. And disturbing is disturbing. I don't know how to tell you. I mean, it's not like disturbing is not, you know, a synonym for pleasant. It's disturbing. So, all right. So last week, I know a lot of people were a little disturbed last week. And that wasn't received as a complaint. That was just recognizing that there's aspects to God's word that is a little unsettling for us. Unsettling is a good thing. It helps us pick up our lives and move it where it needs to be. Uh, But God is also one who comforts the disturbed. Uh, Life can be disturbing. Uh, The conditions of our lives can be disturbing. I just love listening to Tammy's story. I love knowing Tammy for all these years. I love, and and you're going to hear from Peter at some time this month, and he's, he's ill this morning. That's why he's not here. But I love listening to stories that if she had not told you that, you would never have suspected her background was so difficult. She's one of the most godly, loving, other-oriented people I've ever met. And she hasn't caved in on herself and sought to get the whole world around her to help fix her. She is an other-oriented person. If you, if you didn't know Peter's story, you'd never know what damage was done. And what I love about it, and what I love about what we're going to hear today from the Word is that this fallen world, as disturbing as it is, doesn't have permission from God to have the final say about your life. I love that. I know it's a difficult place and environment, and many of us still have chapters of struggle and things that we face, but, but God is a redeeming God. And so God steps into those places and and he's at work in them. Sometimes he's at work in ways that's a little bit difficult to see. That's what I hope we're going to learn today. So I'm going to do this. As you guys are turning to Acts chapter 26, turn there with me. We further our study of the book of Acts and specifically looking at Paul's life. But let let me just frame something about what we're going to learn about Paul today by just asking us to be honest with our own life and to think about where we are right now, maybe where we've been in the last few years and to, and to 
be honest. Don't put your church face on. Don't give that patent covenant group answer that you're supposed to sound like everything's coming up roses. When you walk out of the meeting, you don't feel that way. But how many of you have have gone through seasons or experiences in your life where you just weren't quite sure that God was for you? That he really, really cared about what you're going through and what life is like. As a matter of fact, it can sort of feel like God's removed. I mean, you're just left asking the question, God, where, where are you? And everything in you that's experienced something good from God wants to argue with and fight with that. But there's a big part of you that looks at life and feels like I, I can't find God here. So, you know, is God blessing me? Would God bless me? Why does this feel this way? And then your theology really goes to work here, right? I don't want to chase this point, but you know, sometimes when we're preaching on things like justification, you know, for you it can sound like a really dry doctrine. It's that the doctrine of justification. Oh, okay, let me take a break here mentally for a moment while these guys pontificate about doctrine. Uh, listen, in the moment when your life feels like God's not for you, it's your doctrine of justification that's going to rescue you in that moment. And so if you're a person who ever, ever regularly is asking God whether he's for you or not, then that's not a feeling question. That's a doctrinal question. And you've got to settle that by doing some really good studying about what is it that ever makes God for you. Because you come into this world thinking that people are for me when I can convince them to be for me. People are for me when I finally put enough coins in the machine and they like me because I've stroked them enough times or I've said enough nice things about them and I've learned really how to get them on my side. And everything becomes about you managing and manipulating other people to get them to be for you. And then we come to God and it looks like God's not for me right now. He can't possibly be for me right now or he wouldn't let all this stuff be going on. And guess what mode we go into? Stroke God put our coins in. And and if he's not favorably toward me, is it because I didn't put enough coins in? I didn't stroke God enough. I haven't lived well enough. Therefore, that's why he's not for me. So what have I done? What have I done? And listen, if those are the conversations that you're having with God, it's, it's your doctrine and that's not rescuing you. And it needs to rescue you in that moment. But, I, but that is how life can feel sometimes. And I just, I'm going to zero in on just one phrase today. This will be the least amount of Bible that I think we will ever cover in a message. But we won't even cover all of verse 22 in chapter 26. The Apostle Paul, he's again testifying publicly. As awkward and challenging as that is, I don't know if you've ever been called before government officials. You know, even if you don't have a high opinion of them, it's just an awkward feeling thing. I remember when I had to go talk with the city council about our church and our building and all that stuff. Uh, It's just awkward to stand and have government officials look down because they're always up higher than you are. You know, they're always in some kind of a bench. And so they're looking down on you and, and, and you've got a limited amount of time to speak and say the right thing. Well, this is Paul. He's in this setting again and he's before 
uh, the, the king, Agrippa, and he's, he's giving his testimony, and the Roman governor. So this is where we find Paul in this setting and link the explanation. He gives his testimony, what Christ has done, how Christ has called him. And then he's got this little phrase sitting in this moment after all these trials and situations. Verse 22, he says, to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. All right, that's as much as we're going to read today. So let's pray. Father, uh, I love that this man whom we know as the Apostle Paul had eyes to see what he says with these words. And Lord, I, I pray that you'd be gracious to us today and helpful to us today that we too might have these words ringing from our lips, describing our lives. Lord, may it be that we are profoundly aware that to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. Lord, help us to see that in Jesus' name. Amen. This, this statement finds itself in a very interesting moment for Paul. Right? You remember we've been sitting down in Acts 22 to Acts 26, a, a real slow up four chapter period of Paul sitting on the bench in Caesarea Philippi for two years, right? Now I think I got a map up here of some of Paul's accomplishments. Guys, were we able to find that? Beautiful. All right. This, this is, you know, this is all of Paul's journeys combined together. You've got a bunch of different arrows and a bunch of different colors and a bunch of different maps. And you see the little thing there, Paul's missionary journey. He's got a first journey, a second journey, a third journey. And then finally, we're about to venture into his journey to Rome, uh, which is, is approaching us as we get to chapter 27. But what's interesting here is at this point, Paul's not gone to Rome yet, but there's a lot of work been going on that he's been a part of. So he has planted churches all over this region. I mean, if you start way back over here in Jerusalem and you travel into Macedonia up there to the north and the uh, west and come back, you know, you're, you, you've gone on, you know, 2,000 mile journey there and back. I mean, this is, a, this is a lot of terrain to cover. He's been involved with establishing and planting churches. People are hearing the gospel for the first time. They're being set free from things in their lives and they're enjoying God uh, in their lives for the first time. And he goes back and strengthens these churches and works with them over and over and over again. Paul sat at the center and kind of, you got to kind of catch this. We can read this. We don't care about it. But for Paul, he cared immensely about it because Paul found himself presenting a Jewish religion to a Gentile world. That's where Paul went. And that was a challenging thing. That had some difficulties in it. So this religion that had sat under the guardianship of the Jews was now being made known to the Gentiles, and nobody knew what to do with that on either side of the issue. So if you're a non-Jew, that was kind of different. And if you were a Jew, that was not comfortable because it, it brought all kinds of issues and questions and difficulties. So there's all this conflict going on between Jew and Gentile world. And, and remember, there's the council in Acts chapter 15 where they're coming together and trying to talk through this. And how do, how do we bring Jews and Gentiles into the same group of people? And they all worship God together. Paul has this, 
I don't, you know, I don't think it was just a strategic idea. I think it was, it was yoked to a real need. Paul spent quite a bit of his time before heading to Jerusalem, taking up an offering so that he could bring it back to the people in Jerusalem who were in need. Jewish Christians were in need in Jerusalem. And Paul was harvesting money from the Gentile believers all over the Mediterranean, all through Greece. And there's a strategy going on here. Paul's trying to bring these two groups together. And sometimes, again, we don't know enough about this when we read passages like, God loves a cheerful giver. And we just extract that from the story and we use it in an offering. We say, okay, now everybody, when y'all give this morning, you get your checkbooks out. Y'all be happy about that, all right? Y'all give to Jesus like you're happy. And that's how we use that verse. Listen, Paul was using the verse, look, guys, don't make me look bad. All right? I'm coming to your church. I'm sending some people ahead of me. And when I get there, I'm going to take an offering for the people in Jerusalem. I've already been bragging on you guys. I've already been saying what an awesome bunch of believers you are, how eager you are to love God's people and to help them. So listen, when I show up and you guys said you wanted to help, make sure you do what you determined to do in your heart. That's what Paul's saying. All you guys who have read that verse and say, oh, that means if I don't want to give, I don't give, right? You know, each believer should do what he's determined to do in his own heart. That's how we apply that. Listen, Paul was saying, my name is on the line and your name is on the line. And whether or not you really love these Jewish Christians is on the line. So listen, you, you guys said you would give. I bragged about it. So when I get there, don't disappoint me and not give. Make sure you determine to do what you said you'd do in your hearts and do it with joy because God loves a cheerful giver. Well, he was saying all that because he wanted to take this offering and go back to Jerusalem with it and minister to the poor and the needy in Jerusalem on behalf of the Gentile church. This was strategy. This is bringing these groups together. So finally, Paul gets to take this step of strategy. He shows up in Jerusalem. Nine days later, he's thrown in jail, accused, falsely accused. Charges are made up about him. And he's carted off from Jerusalem to the little town of Caesarea. And he's going to live there for about two years. And then he's going to make this statement at the end of those two years of sitting on the bench. That's a pretty amazing thing. All right, let me put my banner up. I want this to be etched in stone. It was etched in stone over Paul's life. I want it to be etched in stone over our lives. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. Now look in your notes there. Let's look for a moment at the features of Paul's life under this banner, the help that comes from God. Because sometimes if your eye is not trained well, you won't notice the help that comes from God because it sort of can get lost in settings that don't feel very helpful, right? Remember some of these details? Paul shows up in Jerusalem. I'm just limiting my discussion, by the way, to Paul's two years once he set foot in Jerusalem and then got put in jail. So I think I could, I'd be accurate to say I could, I could open up Paul's whole life under this banner because I think he really did see his life that way. But in just the two years, he had a mob that threatened him. Right? He spoke publicly. The mob turned on him. Uh, They were going to flog him and beat him. They had him all stretched out when he mentioned to him that, oh, I don't know if you want to beat a Roman citizen, guys. Is that really what y'all want to do? And, er, well, maybe maybe not. Who are you again? 
right? <clears throat> then he had this plot of Jewish leaders who got together, had backroom conversations, made up stories about Paul and what he did and what he hadn't done, accused him of breaking traditions and breaking laws, and they run him before the, the government officials. Now, you know, for Paul, you know, don't make Paul not a, a real human being. People are lying about him. Anybody like that? Why people lie about you? Do you like that? you enjoy people saying things that aren't accurate about what you've done? And for Paul, remember we said, Paul had just come out of his conversations with the Corinthians where the people in the Corinthian church had been doing the same thing to him. Paul's been living in a long season of being attacked and his motives are being questioned and his teachings are being questioned and whether he's good for others is being questioned. This is how Paul's life feels in this moment. Now, you've you've got people in your life, right? Just insert yourself. You're not the Apostle Paul, not the same setting, but when people are against you, and you know they're against you, how's that, how's that feel for you? Right, you got, I mean, I just, in the last couple of weeks, I've met with folks and, and heard a variety of these exact situations. How disheartening, how absorbing it is when, you, when people at work are against you. Right, they've, they're, they're meeting apart from you. They've been talking about you. You get wind of that. There's things that are being said about your job and your performance and what you said or did and stories are being made up and, and right? I mean, how many of y'all just, just come home and just blow that kind of stuff off? You don't even give it a second thought, right? That's just, I don't think about all that kind of stuff. You know, just talk, the boss is gonna get involved and heads might roll. Or, or it, this can be extended family issues. Uh, seems like there's, there's never a lot of happy endings. Uh, you know, as I talk to guys who do legal work for people who get to this point in their lives when they've got to divide up inheritances, I don't hear a lot of happy stories in that moment. It's like, you know, they, they all related to this family member, that family member dies, and now it's like they all pull out weapons on each other and go to war. Well, I mean, you've got, you've got issues in your own families. You've got extended family. All right, some of you are looking forward to Thanksgiving. Some of you are dreading it because of whoever's going to be there. That person, that relative that doesn't speak to you, and if they do, they've got nothing good to say. And, oh, how am I going to? I don't even know that I want to go this year. Honey, you just go. It's your side of the family anyway. All right. All right. These are the kind of discussions that are going to be going on in households here in the next week or so. Uh, because we, we just don't care for the feeling that people are hostile toward us, right? It can happen in the church. You can have something done to you, said to you, said about you, or you suspect. And next thing you know, you don't want to be around these church people, man. You don't even want to be here today. You just want to be somewhere else. All right, well, that's Paul's setting. And here's what's interesting. Remember, this banner sits over his life. In this moment, he's able to say that he has had the help that comes from God. So apparently, being able to say this does not require everyone to be for me. That might be some good news for us to think about, right? I mean, some of us are working overtime to make sure everybody's for me. Paul didn't have the Corinthians for him. He didn't have government officials for him. He didn't have the mob for him. There was a lot of people that weren't for Paul. Yet, 
the banner over his life was, I have had the help that comes from God. Right? He had government officials that were poorly motivated. If you go back and read where Felix and Festus are involved, these are Roman officials. So Romans governed a certain aspect of law in the land, and then King Agrippa would be representing the Jewish side of law. So there were Jewish laws for the Jews, and there were Roman laws for the people who lived in the Roman Empire. You could violate a Jewish law without necessarily violating a Roman law. And so the Roman law only had jurisdiction over you when you violated their laws. And if it was just a little Jewish thing, then they didn't want to be involved with it. They was like, hey, y'all settle that kind of thing among yourselves. Well, if you go back and read the accounts, the, the Roman governors come right out and say, this man's done nothing for us to hold him. Some kind of dispute about what they believe about something called the way and this Jesus guy from Nazareth who supposedly came back from the dead. And, you know, that's, that's just a dispute about religious ideas. That's for them to work out. Okay, well, then why won't you let me go then? You've got no legal grounds to hold me. But yeah, that's exactly what you're doing. Well, because those political leaders were motivated by other things besides just doing what's right toward you. They had a motive for their own agenda, right? One guy here, he's got a motive to get bribes from Paul. So he wants to keep Paul because I want Paul to pay his way out of this situation. So I'm going to keep you here until I can get that done. Another one of the procurators had motives to please the people who were hostile to Paul. No loyalties to Paul. Their motivation was about another group that they were trying to build and connect with. And so they're going to do the wrong thing in Paul's life because they're motivated by other people. In their life. Now listen, you got people in your world like that. You've got people who live and relate to you who are motivated by something besides what's best for you. They're motivated by pleasing other people. They're motivated by some selfish gain. Could be financial, could be reputation, could be what puts them in a good light. And for you, you're going to live at the expense of that. They're, they're going to put you in a bad situation. They're going to overlooking doing good to you because they're trying to work a deal with somebody else. They've got loyalties to others that they don't have to you. Right? You get young people working through issues, friendships and territories and cliques and who's in and who's out. Right? This is what's happening with Paul. It happens in our lives as well. So you know, how much... Have you yoked the good of your life to having people who are rightly motivated toward you? Right, so you just kind of like, you put living in a good place on hold while you wait for everybody else to get their attitude toward you right. This can be friends. Listen, this, this can be your spouse. This can be spouses when marriages get really bad and you start, you start getting very concerned that your spouse doesn't have your best interest at work in their hearts. They're going to do what's right for them financially, relationally, with other people, perhaps faithfulness to the marriage. And you can begin to get under this cloud of depression because you have, you have linked your life to other people's motivations. Are they motivated toward my good the right way? And what well, question, can, can you have a good life? And at the same time, have people that are motivated toward you the wrong way? And when I ask it that way, everybody will answer, well, yeah, yeah. 
But that's not how we feel, right? When we discover people are not motivated toward us rightly, that's fearful and concerning, and we've got to work on it constantly. But interesting for Paul, people being motivated toward him rightly didn't stop him from saying this. These people are not motivated toward me rightly, but I have had the help that comes from God. He was much more aware of that. Paul was living what felt like a diverted life. I mean, go back to this momentum carrying him into Jerusalem, all this activity, the needs of churches, leading and raising up leaders and ministering in in churches where there's discouragement and strengthening the work that God had begun and bringing Jews and Gentiles together and pushing the gospel to the ends of the earth. And then suddenly all that's derailed and Paul gets to sit on the bench for two years. The man is sitting on the bench for two years. Two years is a pretty significant time frame. If you go back and study Paul's little chapters of his life, two years is longer than his first missionary journey. He planted all those churches in, in Asia, brought up all these believers in less than two years. His second missionary journey is only a little bit longer than two years. Paul spends about two years worth of time in, in the, the church in Antioch, establishing in it and, and bringing it to a place where it becomes the most dynamic church in the New Testament in about two years. A little more than two years, Paul spent in Ephesus doing the same thing there. A lot can be accomplished in the life of the apostle Paul in two years. In these two years, all he's done is sit the bench. All right, now question for you. If the Apostle Paul, as important as he was in the economy of God, can find a place where he looks like his life got detoured and he's just off the path that he certainly thought he'd be living on for two years, it's not beyond the scope of possibility that you and I could live exactly in that same space. You could live in a place where your life feels like, I'm, I'm detoured. My life is on hold. I, I I don't know what's going to happen here. This is not where I thought I'd be. And I didn't think I'd be sitting here this long. And I don't even know what to do next. Right, well, that, that might be your story this morning. But, you know, here again is the great news. To live underneath this banner doesn't require everything to be done according to my schedule and my previous agenda. I thought at this point I would... Okay, well, what if that's not the script? What if that's not where you are right now? What if that's not the way in which life unfolded? You, you had some previous ideas before you got to this date and you thought for sure, this is where I'd be. I'd be married by now, or I'd be farther along financially, et cetera, et cetera. And here you are feeling detoured into another place. But do you stand and say this? To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, right? And then I just look into the future for Paul. Paul is sitting in a jail with unclear circumstances awaiting him, right? I mean, put yourself there with Paul. He's appealed to Caesar, so he's going to Rome next. Can you predict what's gonna happen to this man? Can he predict what's gonna happen to him? He came to Jerusalem not to go sit in jail for two years and then not to be carted off to Rome, 
He came to Jerusalem to do ministry, and then all of a sudden his life went in a different direction. How much steering current do you think Paul's aware of? Who, who's the mover and shaker in Paul's life that he can look to and say, you know, that guy's going to come through for me? All right, I'm looking for him. I've got the right people around me. I know where my future is going to go. How many just would be okay this morning with a sense of, I don't have a strong steering current in my life. I could sit right where I am for who knows how long. And then to be able to say, but to this day, I, I have had the help that comes from God. Right? That's, that's Paul. Now, I look at this list and I look at Paul's response to these circumstances. And I have a big question for myself. And my question for me is, Keith, is this the kind of help you want? Really, Paul? All this time, you have had the help that comes from God? I don't know if that's the kind of help I want, and I don't know if it's the kind of help I'm looking for. I'm not looking for this kind of help, right? When I lift my eyes, I'm looking to take shelter in some other form of help. I I want other things to bring a sense of peace, to bring a sense of affirmation that I'm living where I'm supposed to live. These kind of details wouldn't do for me. As a matter of fact, if I could flip all of Paul's circumstances here upside down, I want the help that comes from the upside down versions of what he had, right? I, I feel more comfortable with the help that comes from favorable mobs, right? Wouldn't you like to have favorable mobs in your life? Right? I, you know, I, I like, you like to have a favorable mob at work, right? You go to work and there's people that you're dealing with there and they're not like the mob that Paul encountered in Jerusalem, no, no, no. I take comfort when everybody you're working with is, is responsive to you. They love your ideas. They think you're important. You're indispensable around here. Oh, my gosh, what would we do without you? They walk in your office and say, you know what? I was just meeting with Joe the other day and telling him, how I don't know how we'd get anything done around here without you, buddy. See, that's what we love. I, give me those mobs. Those mobs make me feel like I got job security. I'm doing something that matters. I feel pretty good about my life right now. I want favorable mobs. I want favorable mobs at home. I do have a mob at home, but I, I want them to be favorable <laughs> to me. When I walk in, I, I, I want them to think about me a certain way and appreciate me a certain way. I don't want them to overlook things that I've done. Them to have kind words, respectful words. Uh, that, you know, that all makes me feel a certain way. Makes me feel good about my parenting. Makes me feel good about my existence with my own family, right? Maybe your extended family, church, whatever world. Don't we all? Don't we all rather have favorable mobs? Favorable mobs make us feel like things are good and secure. I often want to hope in the help that comes from people who are clearly motivated by my interest in well-being. Right? That makes me feel the future is going to be good. People care about me. People are paying attention to my needs. People would never do the wrong thing toward me. People don't have some other motive in mind that they're serving when they interact with me. That brings comfort to me. That brings a sense of peace to me. So when I climb in my prayer closet, yeah, I'm, I'm after this sense of peace and I'm after this sense of well-being and of good going on in my life. But my means of getting it is by somehow asking God to turn everybody into these kinds of people in my life. Right? Is that your prayer strategy as well? I mean, that's, that's not, Paul doesn't seem to be dependent upon that. I'm more at peace 
with the help that comes from diversionless, clear, and well-defined path of progress. I can figure out where this is going, right? We've been trending along here, favorable, favorable. Things are developing. It's getting bigger. It's getting better. And then I, I kind of just kind of take the ruler out and extend that a little bit and can say, hey, this is where I'm going to be next year, right? That this year after that, this feels good. No diversions happening. I can predict this. I, I get a sense of, oh, I can, I can experience well-being in that category, right? I mean, you're, you're, you're a student, you're a college student here, uh, you know, being able to do that, you know, and I'm always helping my kids as they register for classes. You know, we have strategy. You register for classes. You want to make sure you're taking the right professor and the right college, right time. And then sometimes you just get the professor that you absolutely wish you didn't get, right? And I learned this in college. I, I remember having friends. I'm going through engineering school, and I had a good friend who was going through the same thing, same time. But he had other professors sometimes, and I'm doing twice as much work as he's doing, and I'm getting half the grade he's getting just because he had a different professor than me. And all of a sudden, suddenly I realized, wow, I guess it matters who your professor is. You can graduate with A's or you can graduate with C's and you might be smarter than the A people by the time you're done, but it doesn't matter, right? So you, know, you can be a college student here trying to map out, oh, I've got to get the, you know, it's got to be the right class, the right time. I've got to get the right degree, the, you know, tuition. How is that going to get paid for? I don't know how that's going to happen. And we're waiting for those things to all come in line college to respond, the right circumstances to get in order. Then all of a sudden, the sense of things are good. How's it going? Well, things, things are good now. Well, what made them good? The God who has helped me make them good? Well, well, no, the college responded back and told me that I get to have the classes that I needed when I wanted them. And then they're going to give me some money to go to school here. I feel good about that now, right? Listen, college students, what's awaiting you, because you've seen this, it's awaiting many people. You, you graduate, you study, you get a good grade, you get a degree in something, you get out, and you go to work in something totally different than what you just got a degree in. Because there aren't any jobs available for what you spend all this time thinking, hey, I'm going to go do this. And so all of a sudden you're spending years doing something that feels like, okay, I just got diverted. I've just been derailed. Uh, all these years of work and effort, and then I'm over here doing this, Right? Let me just educate the college students here. How many guys are living in the business world, providing for yourself and your families with something different than the degree that you have? Let me see your hands real quick. Right, so you're going you're gonna to graduate and potentially do something different. You know, am I diverted? Do I get a sense of peace in this? Or, you know, where does our peace come from, right? We can look for circumstantial help more than we can look for the help that comes from God. Do you understand how natural-minded we can get very, very quickly that we just like anybody who's godless, anybody who knows nothing of having God before them is looking for circumstances to change and align so that I can be at peace about that rather than living under this banner to this day. I have had the help that comes from God, right? It takes something in the spirit to see those things and not just to see natural things, All right? Quick sense, because I want us to be able to appreciate when this help shows up, I want us to be able to see it, 
I don't want us because I think Paul was trained in learning to see the help that came from God. So let me just give you a few examples of what does the help that comes from God look and feel like, right? So we'll just move through these pretty quick here. First, the, the help that comes from God can feel counterintuitive. God shows up to help you and it looks like he showed up in a way that you would never have looked for or even appreciated. The two years that Paul describes is counterintuitive, isn't it? I don't think anywhere in Paul's agenda was, I'd like to, I'd like to just take a break and sit the bench for the next couple of years. This is a man putting his life on the line, feverishly running after the purpose of God in the church world and seeking to care for and lead others in a way that mattered to him. It was counterintuitive for God's help to show up in a way that says, well, Paul, you're just gonna, you're just gonna be sitting this out for a couple of years. Right? And you remember, he's going to go from a couple years in Caesarea when he makes this statement to a couple more years in Rome where he sits in jail too. So by the time this is all over, it's about four years stint of him just kind of not being free to roam about the world and have an impact on the mission. But God is often counterintuitive in the way in which his help shows up. Was it help for Jacob in the Old Testament? Remember, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Was it help for Jacob for him to find out that his, one of his youngest sons, Joseph, uh, had been killed? He was dead. Was that helpful for this man for years to live with the thought that my son is not with us some mysterious thing has happened to him and he's dead. And that's what that felt like. That's what help felt like. But you and I know the rest of the story that God actually sent Joseph ahead of his own family to save lives, to save lives physically. So there's gonna be help that comes from God for Jacob and his family because Jacob and his family would have died in a worldwide famine had God not helped him by taking his son from him and sending him to Egypt. Now listen, I don't understand the circumstance of how God arranges all this stuff. He's got lying sons who are jealous and they've got issues in their heart and they betray Joseph and off he goes. Had Jacob known that Joseph was alive, what do you think? Jacob would have done. He'd have gone and got him. He's a father. He loves his son. He would not have let him rot in a jail cell. And guess what? He never would have become prime minister of Egypt and never would have been in control of the food sources that were going to save his family. See, help was coming to Jacob in a form that he didn't get and he wouldn't get, but you and I get to see it. And this is how God's help comes. God was helping Jacob while he thought his son was dead. Listen, man, I, I don't know how God sits in the heavens in that because he knows this man is weeping at night, shedding tears over his son. I mean, the God who loves us, what does he just, oh, Jacob, wish I could just peel things back and tell you what I'm doing right now. I just, I can't do it. You'd step in and you'd mess it all up. So he doesn't. It's kind of a strange sense of help when God reaches into a, an agricultural community, his people, you know, their flocks and their, their planting crops. And he installs this thing called the tithe in their lives. This is how the tithe works. Take the first 
10% of your increase and give it to God. It doesn't say, hey, grab a piece here and a piece there. It says, hey, you know what? It's harvest season. So at this point, you've been desperately waiting for harvest, running out of stuff because of last year's harvest was stored up and now you're running out of it. And now it's time to harvest again so that your needs can get met. Oh, but before you go reaching into that and giving it to yourself to meet the needs that you're afraid that you have right now, why don't you give away the first 10% of it to God and just trust that there'll be more coming. You know, the people who have lived through droughts and famines, take the first of your flocks and, and just dedicate them to God. Give them to God. Right? This is counterintuitive. Because I've got needs in my life. God needs to show up and meet my needs. And then I'll try and figure out how to get back with God after that. And God says, no, 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 no. The help that comes from me, you you take this first and you give it to me. I know that seems upside down and backwards. Doesn't it make sense that you ought to just wait until you're done with all your needs and then whatever's left, give that to God? Heck, maybe it'd be 12%. No, it wouldn't be, but (laughs) nice thought. And God's counterintuitively comes in and says, no, give it to me first. And then you figure out, how you're going to live after that. That's counterintuitive. Uh, Hurricane Katrina was a little counterintuitive around here. Right? I don't know how many times I shared the story of what God had done in our lives, in our midst as a church. And, you know, it just, it just didn't feel like a good idea. It didn't feel like help when there's nine feet of water in your building and your friends and family are being scattered to the ends of the earth, wondering whether they're ever going to come back. In that moment, it felt like, wow, whatever we've been building all these years, we're going we're gonna to be starting all over again. All the progress, all the ability to reach our world and our community that God's built in, it just swept away as people depart and the city changes and, and who knows what we do with a building. Counterintuitive, right? I mean, how counterintuitive was it that the help that comes from God came in the form of a poor carpenter in a bad neighborhood called Nazareth with its inability to inspire any amount of respect in the community of the movers and the shakers. But yet into that setting, God would birth the Messiah. All the hurdles that that creates, I mean, make him born into some kingly opportunity where he's got power and he's got a throne to sit on because the help that we need is help overcoming the stinking Romans who are imposing themselves on us, who are stealing from us through taxes, who have made our lives unbearably hard. Why don't you come help us, God? And God tucks away his help in this obscure location through this obscure carpenter who doesn't say much of anything for the first 30 years of his life. Does that sound like a good plan? And this is how God comes to us, right? Counterintuitive. God's help can come to us in a way that appears to be insufficient for the task at hand. Just be prepared to look for God's help in a way that that seems insufficient. It seems as though God is showing up here in an insufficient way. All the churches that just had Paul pulled out of their lives, that that, that seems insufficient. We, We needed that man to lead us. We needed him to come visit our churches. We needed him to help us understand the doctrines that he's been teaching. And Paul sits him on the bench for two years and then sits him on the bench for a little bit more time in Rome. And what Paul does in Rome in jail is Paul writes four letters. Now, in that day and age, you'd have thought, okay, great, we can swap Paul for four letters? I don't think so. 
How many of you guys today are glad that Paul wrote those four letters? You and I are still benefiting from the Apostle Paul's ministry, not because he could go about and roam, but because he sat still and wrote those letters, and you and I are affected by them. Listen, I don't know what it felt like when the crisis of the moment is a Philistine army with all of its reputation and all the concerns for the people of God and this giant person who whittles things down to a challenge between Goliath and whosoever will come out and face me. And he stands and he mocks God's people. What's at stake here is, is future enslavement and versus free enterprise. You guys are you going to be a free nation to govern yourselves or you will become our slaves and we will govern you. Who would like to come out and face Goliath? How many of y'all know that the young man, older boy named David who showed up seemed like an insufficient supply? The non-soldier, I'm sorry, the weaponry you're giving me doesn't fit guy is going to go out, stand with a leather strap and some stones in his hand, against this giant mocking man with all of his armor and bulging muscles and reputation. I mean, you know, God's help seems insufficient in that moment. But to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. This is how God chooses to show up sometimes. I I love the story of The day that God's people have their back against the wall, three kings have come against them. Three nations are seeking to subdue them. And King Jehoshaphat is facing them. And and his response is, along with the people, full of fear. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. What do you do in this moment? Everything seems against you. Whatever your three kings are, here they come. And what are you going to do to respond to that? And Jehoshaphat calls a prayer meeting. (laughs) Really, dude? Don't you think you ought to be sharpening spears and uh, training every kid to shoot a bow and do whatever it is you got to do? Don't you think you need a strategy? Why don't you meet with the generals? Why don't you figure out how to get the women and children out of here, dude? We're, We're about to get overrun. You're calling a prayer meeting. That seems a little insufficient. That seems a little weak most important way in which God's help would come to them was through a prayer meeting. They faced overwhelming odds and the means for them to walk through that circumstances was found in a prayer meeting. That probably felt a little insufficient. That probably still feels a little insufficient to God's people. You know how I can tell that we, most of us believe that prayer meetings are insufficient to meet the needs, the real pressing, urgent needs of our lives. You know how I can tell that we feel like it's insufficient? Because of how few show up for prayer meetings. That's how I can tell. See, that's, that's insufficient. You don't understand. I got my day going. I got stuff. I got things I'm responsible for. I got to move and shake, man. This, this pause and pray, this put things down and don't do that and do something. What is prayer anyway? You're just talking out loud to God? It's a little insufficient thing. I need to go talk to this person. I need to go make this happen. I've got this appointment. I've got to strategize. I've got to meet with the people at work. I've got to sit down with my family. I've got to, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to. Sit down with God and pray? That seems insufficient and unnecessary, right? 
might be the most important thing that you and I do is make room to appeal to God. This little quiet non-activity that moves and shakes the earth. God's help often can feel late. I mean, God has felt like, yeah, sure, God wants to help me. He just seems to be late. I remember Mary and Martha. Jesus shows up. Lazarus is dead. He's good and dead, the Bible kind of says. He's kind of the stinky kind of dead, good and dead. And the response of Mary and Martha is, Jesus, if only you had done this differently. If only you'd just shown up a little bit earlier, then, then your help would have really been help. Of course, we know the story that God shows up and resurrects him from the dead. God's help sometimes appears to us to be late. Because God's doing other things besides just our agenda. God had something else going on there. And this, this is an interesting thing to try and get our minds around. Sometimes God's help isn't going to show up in your life. Sometimes. Don't make this true of everything. It's not going to show up in your life until that thing is dead. And the times you're going to freak out the most is watching it die. And all along, you've been asking for Jesus to show up and fix it, show up and fix it, show up and fix it, show up and heal it, show up and keep it from going bad, show up, it's getting worse. God, show up and make this thing. And God lets it die. And your question is, well, God, what kind of help is that? That's not help. Well, sometimes God's doing more than what you're asking him to do. And so letting that thing die was exactly what God needed to do so he could accomplish that. See how much time I got here. Um, one more. If you're going to see God do things, you're going to have to see them through eyes of faith. To this day, I have received the help that comes from God, but you can't see it with natural eyes. You have to learn to see it by Faith, right? Hebrews 11, 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Not seen, right? I'm looking for mobs to get favorable. I'm looking for diversions to be avoided. I'm looking for natural things, but the help that comes from God is observable by faith. 1 Corinthians 2. As it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the spirit. Now we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Right? This, this is what gives Paul the ability to look at the last two years of his life and say, to this day I have had the help that comes from God because by the Spirit he saw what God was doing in his life. And what I love about Paul in this moment 
is the fact that he doesn't sound out of sorts. Right? I mean, I describe his circumstances and I think, I'm freaking out here. This is two years, unpredictable. Who knows where this is going? I'm on the bench. There's a lot of important things that need to happen here. I'm freaking out. Paul doesn't sound freaking out. Paul, Paul really sounds like he's okay. God's been giving help in a counterintuitive way. God has diverted his life. People are not motivated well towards him. And yet he sees the help that comes from God all over his life. Now, this is, this is what's exciting because I know maybe a lot of us aren't where Paul is. I, I get that, really. We're looking at our lives and we don't say this. This is not the banner you'd encounter. If you got around my life, this is not how I'd sound. Like I'm aware that God is helping me right now. I, I sound like there's no help. I sound like I'm panicked. I sound like this bad things are going to happen. That's all that's, I can tell you. But I, I love the fact that the apostle Paul's a real man. And he learned to see this. I don't think he always saw it. I think he learned to see this. And you and I can learn to see it as well, right? This one last passage here. and I'm going to close in just a moment. Kurt, he can go ahead and come back up. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Do you guys remember the Apostle Paul writing this? This, this is... Years earlier in his life, right? We're 59 AD when Paul says this statement over his life. This is not clear when this actually happened, but it's years earlier. He at least wrote it a couple of years earlier because it's written to the Corinthians. So years before that, Paul describes an event in his life when he says, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from being too elated, too elevated, too puffed up, too important because I'd had these amazing revelations from God. So God was at work knowing that he needed to be in my life. Verse eight, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Now what's interesting here is there's not any mention of Paul trying to plead his way out of jail. Right? He's two years later, he's in jail. He's gonna be in jail a bit longer. And there's no Paul pleading, God, get me out of jail. Oh God, you gotta get me out of jail, God. I mean, wouldn't that be in my diary? I'm pretty sure I'd be praying about a little freedom here. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. All right, this is Paul before learning, and this is Paul after learning. Now, unfortunately, I identify with Paul before learning. I identify with the multiple appeals to God. God, get rid of this thing. Take it away. Change it. Well, how do I know? Well, it's a thorn. That's how I know. Well, what do thorns do? They bring comfort? No, they bring pain. They're jabbing me. They're poking me. It's irritating. It's distracting I really don't want this. So I begin to strategize with God. I begin to pray to God. I begin to call out to God. I'm in panic mode. God, take it away, take it away, take it away. 
and, and maybe you haven't got where Paul hears these things and I need to hear them. But would you guys have ascribed this? This is where this gets really kind of sketchy. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. All right, pick that phrase up and stick it on this event. To this day, I had the help that came from God. The help was a thorn. How many of us would have looked at a thorn and go, oh, God, thank you for helping me. The help was a messenger from Satan. Are you kidding me? A messenger from Satan was God's help? And he was sent to harass me. These are great words, aren't they? None of these sound like help. They sound like things that make me go, help. (laughs) To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And then that goes to work on me. And it introduces me to a self-existence characterized by the word weakness. How many of us love that? I I don't think that word weakness means, oh, I was just tired. I think it means that off-balance sense of life, that sense that I don't know what to do. I am mentally exhausted. My mind is blurry. I don't know how to proceed. I'm disoriented. I'm challenged to believe rightly about God and circumstances and people. I'm just, I'm in a condition of weakness. That's what I feel like right now. And God says, well, that's what I designed it to feel like. I was sending you help. Paul, I was doing something in your life that was more important than just making the thorn go away. I was teaching you to look to me and to depend upon me and to need me. I was teaching you to be in touch with your own weakness so that you would look to me for divine strength. That's what I was doing. I was helping you all the time. So Paul turns around and says, well, I've learned to be content then with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, lying people, people poorly motivated, jail times with no sense of incoming, corrupt politicians sitting in my life. I've learned to be content with those things because to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. Listen, this is where I'd like to land us today. Listen, this is, you know, please don't be insulted by this. I will freely say there are seasons still in my life. I can say I've learned some of this. But there are seasons still in my life where my prayer life is only open to God to rescue me from this. God, make it stop. It's a thorn. God. And if I get any wind that it's from the devil, all the more I'm going to tell you to make it stop. I want that sucker having access to me. Right? So we just, we pray these panic prayers. And what motivates us is what we started with here is I'm looking for life to be about favorable mobs and non-diverted moments. And I, I've got natural eyes. And so my prayer life is about the natural aspects of life. And so I begin to call out to God, Lord, change those people's hearts and let them be right toward me and blah, blah, blah. And Lord, don't divert and don't delay. And God, be sufficient when you show up. Control all these natural circumstances. So my prayer life is about constructing a natural world that I think will help me. 
rather than seeing into a supernatural world where things like thorns and even messengers of Satan and feeling weak and out of sorts are described as the help that comes from God. I got, I got to see that. I've got to have a different agenda here this morning. I want to pray for us to be able to see a different agenda. Right? The, let me, I, I want to read one more part of that passage. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. It was Paul's suffering and difficulty and questions that set him before the small and the great so that he could testify about the reality of who God is. Listen, that, do you you want that for your life? Do you want that more than you just want to live in a comfortable place where everything's predictable and the bills are going to get paid in a certain way because you know that there's no surprises. Everything's just easy. Oh God, make it easy. God, make it easier. Oh Lord, always make it easy. Oh God, move in heaven. I'm crying out to you. Make it easy. Less and less painful. Paul saw something here. I, you know, I'm, I've learned to be content in these things. God is at work. The, the help that comes from God has been my story. So I know God's helping me right now. And, and he has set me before small and great so that I may tell others about him. Listen, you can be honest with God this morning. If you're praying prayers this morning that just sound like God, take it away, God, take it away. Make it stop, make it stop. Listen, my heart goes out to you. I don't mean this to be a, oh, this is a highfalutin idea. You know, when, when Jacob's son appears to be dead, that man's crying out, Lord, make it stop. Lord, help my heart. I miss my son. Right, that, that's your story. That's a piece of your story. That's part of what your life feels like, right? But there's other things going on that God is at work doing. To this day, Jacob, to this day, Paul, to this day, we have had the help that comes from God. So however it is that you're encountering weakness, off balance, hurt, difficulty, this morning, I just want to pray for us. I want God to help us to see. I want God to comfort the disturbed this morning by letting us know God is at work in places. May your spiritual eyes be open to see that this morning. So can you can you do this? Can you be eager to receive comfort and not passive in that? Right, you know what I mean by that? I don't want you just sitting there listening to me now. I want you to I want you to be eager with God. I want you to tell God, God, I'm I'm eager to receive this. I'm eager for you to communicate with me like you did with Paul, where you drew near to Paul and you said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Listen, up to that communication from God, Paul wasn't getting it. It just feels wrong and it hurts. And God had to speak to him and say, Paul, I know it hurts. But in your weakness, my strength is being made known to you. He had to hear God say that. And you might need to hear God say something like that to you this morning. Otherwise, you're going to stay crying, uncle, uncle, uncle. So can we make some room to listen right now? Can you guys be eager to listen? What's God need to say to you right now? So let's bow our heads. You can sit down. Just let's bow our heads for a moment.
Would you help, help us now to receive, Lord? This is not a topic that's far from us. God, we live in these places where life is painful, confusing. Weakness is our story. God, many, many of us here today would be praying about something that's really disturbing us. Lord, we are feeling like you're absent. We don't sense your nearness. We don't see how you're at work. Lord, it just looks as if it's spinning out of control and people who want to hurt us and situations that we've been diverted into are around us. God, this morning though, our hearts are aware that there's more going on here than just what natural eyes can see. So God, would you help us to see in the spirit, Lord? Would you help us to hear your voice speak to us? Lord, would you draw near to us who are in this place of need? Listen, I I want want you guys to be eager to receive. I think if the apostle Paul is crying out three times, this this is a challenge for him. So if you're here this morning, I don't want you to be passive in this. I want you to aggressively pursue the comfort that comes from God in the midst of what's been disturbing you. So if you're in a situation right now, I'm not going to ask you to come forward. But if you're in a situation right now where you feel like my prayers right now are totally about God, make it stop. God, fix it. I don't have a sense of how God is helping me right now. I want you to stand up right where you are. I'm not going to make you come forward, but I want you to be a little more aggressive than just sitting there. company, some quality people in this room right now saying, this is how I'm feeling. Most of the folks who are seated could say, I know exactly how they're feeling because I've been in that place too. And we're standing in line behind the apostle Paul who cried uncle. said, Lord, I don't, I don't see what you're doing here. But it was in these moments that he learned to be in jail and be content, to learn to see the hand of God was at work in ways to be able to confess and to say, to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. Lord, I thank you that when we are together, your spirit dwells in our midst. I thank you that your word is preached so that our hearts can be responsive and faith can be awakened in our souls, Lord. So I look at all those who are standing in this room this morning. Lord, we join together on their behalf, Lord, because I know what it is to stand in that place. And all I can see is natural things. All I can see is those things have to get fixed in order for my life to get fixed. So, Lord, we lift this meeting to you. We lift this time to you, Lord. We lift these who are standing to you this morning. Lord, would you speak to them? Spirit of God, you still speak. 
reason why the Apostle Paul reveals these words in 2 Corinthians 12 was because you spoke to him. Lord, thank you for the lesson taught to him that he felt it was helpful for us to hear it. But Lord, it was his lesson. And it was you caring for his soul. It was you looking at your own son in anguish, crying out, God, take this from me. Take this from me. Take this from me. When you revealed that you were at work in the very things that he was praying about, that you had arranged these things, that you were accomplishing eternal, important things in his life. Lord, you're still speaking and we still need to hear your voice. Lord, I don't know what this man becomes in his life if he hadn't heard you say that. Because the path he walked on, he needed to be able to see your help in invisible places. He needed to be aware that you were for him when everything felt like it was against him. Well, Lord, would you help us today? Would you speak to us today? Lord, every circumstance and situation that's represented by those standing, no matter what the natural world looks like, no matter what the people in the story are like, no matter who they're ever going to be, Lord, no matter what resources we have at our hands, no matter what we can see into the future, no matter whether we can predict an end to where we are or it looks like there's no end in sight. Lord, bear witness right now in our hearts. The truth is we have had the help that comes from God. Our God is at work and he is faithful and he is doing things that will surprise us. Lord, one day, We will see and rejoice one day. We will say thank you for what our eyes see, even though right now we're just saying thank you for who you are to us, God, what we trust you will do. Lord, would you stir into our hearts fresh faith to live in these places, to live in these moments where everything natural seems wrong, but by faith we know something about you, God. Your help is at work. You are helping us because that's who you are to us. You've given us your spirit. You've called him our helper. You have taken up a place in our lives, affectionately known as our father. You are the rescuer who came into this world to put on human flesh, to enter into our trouble, to take upon yourself our judgment and our sin. You are our redeemer and restorer. Lord, that's who we know you to be. No matter how loud our lives are, God, that's what we receive from you this morning. So, Lord, as we we just close in song, somebody stand up together. Lord, as we just close now by singing to you, God, we need you to write this in our hearts so that like Paul, one day we will tell the story of, I remember praying in a season. I cried out for God to make these things go away only to end up embracing the help that comes from God as he chooses to give it. For he is my helper and he is faithful to me. I will bless the Lord Just in bad.